HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host. It's our 14th year with Heritage Radio Network. We're here today in the studio, the historic studio in, at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And I'm very happy to be here. Uh, my guest is working on a book about the history of New York beers. And this is quite the, 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 the book, and it's still two years away. But we thought today was a good time to, to, to touch base. So my guest today is... Hi, I'm uh, Carlo DeVito. I'm a wine, beers, and spirits editor. I've been uh, doing that for about 25 years. Uh, my most recent books have been uh, Big Whiskey, Drink the Northeast, the new single malt whiskey, and uh, a lot of other stuff. You know, there's Carlo, there's so many things that have happened in New York. You know, w- one reason we're sitting together today is we were talking about some of the early cans, like Kruger's was a brewery that was one of the first breweries to can, and they, they were based in New York, New York State, and um, we just started talking about other things. So there's a lot of milestones that we're, we're going to talk about that, that are going to be featured in your book. But it's, so it's basically like the history of, of New York from day one. Now, what, what's the impetus for this book? Who's writing it with you, researching? Because this I see it on Facebook all the time. You are knocking out like 400 years of, of serious drinking. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I'm really lucky. I work with a, a great group of guys, uh, Craig Gravina, who certainly knows uh, some of the early New York City history, and especially the Albany area. He's a published uh, author. Uh, Alan McLeod, who was his writing partner, is an expert on uh, Dutch and English control of uh, of the Manhattan Island uh, from, from those periods. Uh, we've got uh, Ethan Cox uh, from Buffalo, uh, who's with the Buffalo Beer Project and who's written the history of brewing in Buffalo. And we've got Don Cazentre, who's covered everything from central New York and the Finger Lakes. And uh, he's just a tremendous uh, 
uh, uh, asset as well. So we've got guys who really, really know each of their regions incredibly well. Uh, I'm covering a lot of the New York City uh, stuff that they haven't. And um, that's a tremendous project. We were approached by uh, SUNY University. So this is a project with SUNY University. And it's going to be about a three to four year project. This is not a small undertaking. We're working with Library of Congress. We're working with a half a dozen uh, local uh, county historical societies, um, the New York Historical Society, the New York Public Library. It's a, it's a massive undertaking. So in your background, I know you've worked in publishing. Yes. Uh, I worked uh, for Simon and Schuster uh, Scribners. I've worked uh, for uh, Macmillan, McGraw Hill, uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, and I've done a lot of wine, beers, and spirits books with Esquire, the New York Times, Wine Spectator, etc. Like the David Wondrich book. Uh, I've worked with uh, Dave. Uh, participated in our New York Times uh, essential cocktails, and I did a cocktail book uh, that Dave wrote uh, while I was working for the, uh, I used to run the Hearst book imprint uh, with Jacqueline Duval and and I uh, did a lot of those wine, beers, and spirits titles with them. Yeah, well, it's, it's great having you on the show. You know, it turns out we've, we've known each other a, a long time. I think this is your first time in the studio at Roberta's with me. Uh, this, is, uh, this is history in the making for me. This is awesome. Wow. Well, I want to talk about the, the this book that you're working on. So, uh, when was the first beer poured in in New York? Well, that's that's the beauty of this book. I mean, we go right to the right from the beginning. Uh, Hudson uh, sails uh, into the Hudson, what is now the Hudson River, which they called the North River at the time. And his first contact with Native Americans or American Indians, whichever you prefer, is the first uh, includes beer, and he trades beer for foodstuffs. Uh, they think it's a kind of one-time event, and the um, and they come right back the next day with uh, venison and all kinds of food, and they want more beer, and that's really the uh, the you know the the first contact includes beer. Um, what happens next, again, is is fueled by beer uh, uh, in a in a very serious way. Uh, subsequent um, uh, trips from the Dutch West India Company, because the Dutch are, are, are first in New York State. Uh, there, there's two ships. Uh, they're both relying on uh, trading for goods. Uh, they're bringing home pelts, etc. And the Tiger burns down to the waterline, uh, which is one of the two ships that are slated to go back. It's now fall. And these men are desperate. So they take the timbers that were below the waterline. And the first building built in New York State is a brewery because they've got to survive the winter. So the New York State is tied to beer right from the very beginning, from Hudson to the, uh, from the Dutch building the first uh, building, which is a brewery. The first city hall is a tavern slash brewery. And the first paved street in New York City, in, in all of New York State, is what is now known as Stone Street, but it was the Brewer's Row at the time. And the brewers were tired of getting their wagons stuck in the mud. So they, they said to hell with this and they paved the street themselves with their own money so that their, their carts wouldn't get stuck in downtown uh, New Amsterdam, as it was known then. Wow. So the, the, these are the little highlights. So colonial America is, 
Dutch era, in- English era. Um, wow, my, my head's spinning. <laughs> There's a lot that goes on, you know, and it's very funny because um, Alan and, and, and Craig did a great job uh, doing, really doing the hard research. I have to say the hardest research of some of this project was looking, they looked through all these obscure news sheets from back in the 1600s and, and early 1700s. And they were really able to piece together the, the brewing history of the period. And the first question you have is like, well, what kind of beer were they drinking? And what you what you find out, especially in, uh, in the beginning, is that it depends on who's there. The, the Dutch bring their style of beer with them. You're always bringing home with you. Uh, beer completely takes a left turn when the English take over the colony. Uh, and now you have much more traditional English beers being brought into the country. So the beer styles change immensely uh, over you know a hundred year period. Uh, you're, you're going from all these kind of Flemish style beers to um, you know hardcore English ales, and it's a, it's a major turning point. And you see it start to happen. It happens a little later in Albany because Albany, even though the English take over the state. Uh, and and they affect Manhattan more than any place else. The the Dutch really still run Albany for quite like almost a hundred years later. They're still running Albany, which is why you see so many Dutch names up up in that way uh, even today. Well, just tell there's some names that that I know like Rensselaer. There's Rensselaer. There's Stuyvesant. There's there's all those folks. Stuyvesant is really the most fascinating character because. Uh, what most people don't realize is that uh, uh, New Amsterdam, especially in the Dutch Rennet, they kept really good records. But basically, it was it was Deadwood, but with you know really fancy costumes. That's pretty much it. Uh, it was a very rough and tumble town. It was very hard to get um, uh, Europeans to come over and be colonials. Um, it was not an easy place to live. The Dutch send over Stuyvesant to clean it up. And when he gets here, there's just drinking nonstop seven days a week. And he institutes the first blue laws because he said, this place is a madhouse. We've got to have some semblance of law and order to try to, to, try to make this into a, a, an actual livable community. And so he institutes the blue laws just to get the people like dry for a day and a half a, a week. <laughs> That's pretty wild. Wow. And he's very unpopular for it, by the way. I guess anybody would be. <laughs> he picked Sunday because it was the easiest day. He was able to uh, keep the the uh, the uh, the local uh, you know reverends happy and all that. But uh, that's that's really what it came down from. So, what are some other highlights? Like, I mean, we we, we we're going to talk about some other dates that stand out for you. But um, I'm always curious about the early licenses. So, Stuyvesant comes into New York. Could anyone brew beer then? Were people brewing beer in their houses? Well, as I said, the uh, the most amazing thing was that the the uh, Dutch kept really really good records. So you have you had to have a license, you had to you had to register yourself, etc. The the English they maybe they were collecting the money, but they weren't writing down what they were doing. So the records, as Alan uh, explained to me, were were fairly lax and during the English control. The English had a lot of things that they were trying to do, and they first established uh, their presence. And of course, they were. There was a lot of uh, back and forth between the leftover Dutch settlers uh, and the uh, and the English. The English 
took a really kind of snide look at the at the colonials, the, the Dutch colonials, and were like, well, you screwed it up, but we're going to take it over. And um, and I don't think the Dutch were any better. I mean, the English, I don't think were really any better than the, uh, than the Dutch. But um, what's most uh, interesting is that, A, most beer was uh, brewed in a, in a tavern setting. Uh, you went to a tavern, you had a beer, but, uh, you know, there was no packaged beer back in those days or anything like that. Um, and you really don't get to really packaged brew until around uh, the later colonial period, like 1700s, uh, bottles are introduced. They're brought over from England. Most of the bottles that are brought over from England are filled with something else first. So it made it uh, more profitable to ship those bottles over. And then once those bottles were emptied, then you would use them to uh, 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 bottle beer. And so that's really where the, most of the bottles came from Bristol, England, and they were brought over here. And that was a big selling point. Like, oh, we, we use Bristol bottles. Uh, they, were, they came in clear, green, and blue. And those were the popular colors of, of, of the period. Um, and then uh, really the most famous a commercial brewery of the period would then turn out to be after the Revolutionary War. And of course, there's Francis Tavern, of course, which is a big thing. But the real, real uh, uh, big thing would be the uh, the old brewery down at the Five Points, which was made famous by Gangs of New York. And that that's a real touchstone in New York State brewing. So as you guys are researching this, is it just based on, you know, records that are being found and anecdotes or, or are you trying to match it with things like what, what you've seen in a movie? Uh, what we're trying to do is match them to history is really the big, big thing. Uh, for example, again, Alan and Craig found these wonderful stories uh, of um, how brewing affected uh, the city during the Revolutionary War. Some people, uh, you know, the British took over the city fairly early on in, in the war. So a lot of people, uh, you know, made trade with the British. Some of those people were ostracized after the war. Some of their uh, properties were confiscated, etc. Other people got stiffed by the British when they left. So there, there's a lot of those kinds of stories. Who was selling beer to which army uh, became a big thing. It was a question of your patriotism. Um, and, and so there was, there was a lot of that. Several brewers either went to Canada or back to England after, uh, after the Revolutionary War. Uh, others were feted as heroes. So back to style. So you think when the the Dutch were there in the 1600s, it was more of a Flemish style? Uh, yeah, that, that that's the uh, record. There was a lot of small beer, table beer, and you're trying to figure out what that is. But in the end, it's it's what did the Dutch bring over? And and that becomes more apparent as the generations happen, right? You have the generations with the Dutch, then the English start to bring it over. And where you find this information is, and this is where... Uh, Alan and Craig did just did a tremendous job. They were literally going through the classifieds of these of these old newspapers, finding the ads for what these guys were selling back in the day. And you had something like new beer, and you had old beer, which was basically a, an, am a, an amalgamation of the leftovers of, of other beers. Um, there were all these styles that we don't even think about today, or ways of packaging or, or consolidating that, that we don't do today that were part of part and parcel of what they did back then. Wow. And, and uh, let, let's jump ahead. Um, th th there was a date that I, I was talking about earlier. To me, it was 1820. I remember there was an article in, in the New York Times magazine about 
you know, wh- how breakfast changed. And in 1820, it seemed to resonate with, with beer because 1820, there was no packaged food. There was no processed food. It was like the leftover meat with leftover piece of pie. And that's exactly true of the of the of the uh, beer business of that time. Uh, like I said, the the, mo- the most famous of the breweries at that time was the uh, old brewery uh, at the Five Points, uh, and that was the largest brewery back in the day in Lower Manhattan. Uh, and that brewery was significant for a number of things. It was the largest. Um, it helped pollute the the, uh, the drinkable water in Lower Manhattan to the point, combined with another tannery and uh, another or several other businesses, a tannery and something else, uh, to the point where water in Ma- Lower Manhattan was undrinkable, and you had to uh, they had to import water from up the northern parts of uh, Manhattan down into lower Manhattan because there was no drinkable water back then. But up until that point, um, which but what, nece- when was this? That, that necessitates the, the first, um, um, Croton reservoir. That's, there was literally a 20, 30 year period where there was no brewing in New York because there was no drinkable water in the, in the, in, the, in lower Manhattan. Uh, and that's around the 1830s. So, uh, 1820s, uh, like you were saying is really when, commercial brewing starts to take off as something uh because up to that point uh, a lot of beer is being um uh, made uh in taverns or you're making it at home especially as you get outside of manhattan where you have much more rural settings uh those those beers are being made mostly by uh wives while their husbands are out hunting and gathering or, or doing whatever they were doing uh most of the brewing was left to women uh out in the uh, out in the uh in the, on the frontiers it's like farm farmhouse style farmhouse style that's exactly what it was wow. so that's where that where that goes and then uh like i said the uh the, you have the you have a temporary setback uh because of uh the the lack of water in lower manhattan and then the Croton Reservoir completely changes everything. And now there's water and then brewing begins again in the city. But again, it's it, the commercial brewing starts to rise in that period. So the, the first street was paved the first street for was beer. Paved. Yep. And, they were and you all... think the Croton, the Croton Reservoir was built for beer? <laughs> well, I don't know whether it was uh, built for beer, but it uh, it it's when it was finished, you start to see the beer industry flourish again. It's really fascinating. Uh, the the beer the beer industry completely just pops right back up once the Croton Reservoir. So the the second the half of the we're really just cut we're getting little highlights here and there because <laughs> this book. I mean, where are you at in the in the writing process now with your with your oh, whole wow. team? Are you guys even into nineteen hundred? Oh, oh yeah, yet? We, we've been at this now for about two and a half years. Uh, so our first draft of the manuscript is is complete. But it's way too big, so it's got to be cut back, and we still have some other interviews to do. So we're at about uh, three hundred and fifty thousand words, and we really need to cut about one hundred and twenty thousand words. It's it's a it's really big, and um, so I think we're at the point now where we're trying to um, uh, make sure we emphasize the, the the interesting stories, the important stories, and um, uh, I think we're going to minimize a little bit of the. Deuteronomy section, uh, you know, this guy begot that guy begot that guy. We're not, it's not a history of every brewery that ever was ever in New York. The idea is that 
how were the trends in brewing affected by the, what was going on in the state and vice versa? Uh, you know, uh, you and I were having a conversation off uh, 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 before we walked into the studio. Uh, but the Erie Canal, for example, is a big one. Like, I, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, Erie Canal, I just knew, like, I have a mule and her name is Sal, 15 miles on the Erie Canal. I had no <laughs> idea what the Erie Canal really did or didn't do as a, as a kid. I could have cared less. Uh, but in, in, the, in the history of brewing in New York State, it's super important because all the uh, usually originally beer was a local thing. You, you had a farm, you grew grain and you, uh, you made your beer. Uh, if you were a brewery, you weren't far from the, from the grain. Eventually it starts to be out by the Finger Lakes in central New York. Then it goes to Western New York. And now it starts to go to the Midwest and, and you start to buy grain from Canada as the breweries get bigger and bigger. Now all of a sudden you need a supply chain. What used to just go up and down the Hudson River, uh, thankfully uh, all tied in again with things like beyond the Hudson River Sloop, now you're getting into the steamships developed by uh, Fulton and Livingston, right? So that that necessitates a, a further uh, supply chain. Once you have growing out west, now you need the Erie Canal. Because if you're growing um, uh, grain in the Midwest or, or in Western New York, it takes you three to four months to bring your grain to market in New York City, where Schaefer or Pil or Peels or Wrangell or any one of these massive breweries is going to get your stuff. The Erie Canal makes it three weeks. So all of a sudden you use Federal Express for your for your grain. And that's why the Erie Canal was so important. And I thought that was a really fascinating thing is that it, it really puts history into context and it also it makes it more understandable. But that was days. for beer too then. That well, it wasn't just for beer, but grain for beer but it from the middle. explains how it worked for the rest of the world too, right? And so that's the fascinating part. And then of course it's about later on it becomes about the um the railroads, because the railroads buy up all the little canal companies and put them out of business. So now you have to rely on the railroad to get your goods down to market. So there's there's all these kinds of parts of history of the state that also are unfolded and it shows you the real practical impact of how it, of how it really worked. So 19th century, 1800s, I mentioned a couple of the, the breweries that, that were noted at their time. Oh, wow. So in Buffalo, you have Gerhard Langs, which is, is one of the state-of-the-art biggest, most wonderful breweries in, in America. Uh, you have, uh, in Manhattan, you have three of the largest breweries in America right there. You 1800s. Have, uh, yep. Uh, around 18, well, late 1800s, after the Civil War is when brewing really takes off as an industrial uh, event. And, and New York is the number one brewer of beer for 100, 120 years. Uh, Lion Brewing, which is now, I don't know, a large portion, uh, not a large portion, but is a now a portion of uh, the Columbia uh, University campus. It was uh, six to eight uh, city blocks. Uh, Columbia uh, Lion Brewing was one of the greatest fortunes ever made in, in New York State brewing and has a wonderful uh, exotic tail attached to it. You have uh, on the west side, Yorkville was all breweries. Uh, you had um, uh, uh, Rupert, Jacob Rupert Brewery, which was again six to eight city blocks, uh, which is now Yorktown. You had uh, Eretz uh, Hellgate Brewery, again, uh, six to eight square city blocks, plus a, a literally like another 25 or 40 small city breweries that took up a block, two blocks, four blocks, all around the city. The city was a huge manufacturing hub after the Civil War when it came to uh, beer. It, it manufactured other things as well, but it, um, 
uh, what was it? Um, uh, one of the one of the big ones uh, was located uh, right above um, uh, Grand Central, uh, right where uh, Seagram's and everything is today. Was another large brewery right there. So it was really fascinating to see the uh, the the growth of the city because uh, one of the big cycles that you see in this project is that people would create a brewery, then you have a son who furthers the brewery, and then you have the idiot grandson who's like, well, you know what the <laughs> the uh, the the land is much more valuable than the brewery because the city is growing, and so therein uh, you start to sell and buy land as a brewer, and great fortunes are made and spent and remade buying and selling land that becomes a part of the brewing industry, part of the brewing lore. Wow. Well, we're out in can, Bushwick. Can I ask a? Oh, go, can Matt. I go jump for it. In? Hey. Uh, so, Matt Patterson. <laughs> how's it going? Engineer extraordinaire. Uh, so, I think most people who have listened to Beer Sessions Radio have done at least one brewery tour in their life. And when you say something is like six to eight city blocks, that's, that's pretty large. And I guess I'm just curious. I mean, even for breweries today, I mean, I'm curious, like, what is different about the physical plant and like what they're doing at a brewery that makes them take up that much space at that time? Well, uh, that's a great question. So early on, you have to remember that the, the machinery to do this was not as compact and, and unique as it is now. So a bottling plant was a building like you, you didn't have a bottling plant inside your brewery. You had a bottling plant across the street, for example. Uh, you had stables of horses because back then now you're you're running a, a business where you're delivering beer to your places so you'd have a stable you'd maybe have anywhere from 25 to 100 horses now that's a big big building and you need a garage to house all those um, they called them trucks but they were wagons um, so that's huge um, you know they had their grain they had their uh, milling uh, it was all the stuff of a, of a major brewery but you're talking about places that were doing you know uh, half a million to a million barrels a year so you're not talking about small companies Lion at one point in the I think it was 1880s 1870s 1890s was the largest brewery in America. Then they got usurped by Eret, and then they got usurped by Rupert um, uh, Schaefer. Sa uh, Schaefer was the one that was around uh, a Grand Central Station. They have a massive one. They suffer a fire. Again, the land is just way, they, they rebuild, but the land is just too valuable. And cost of doing business is not profitable being in the center of the city. So they sell their holdings in mid Manhattan, again, four, six blocks, and they move out to uh, Brooklyn. So, uh, uh, like I said, these were, these were massive plants yeah. and they were selling literally uh, just a ton of beer. Yeah. The breweries, the breweries are like bigger than I gave them credit for in my mind. And they include like, parts of a business. I don't think of horse stables when I think of modern breweries. Right. So I wasn't accounting for that. But yeah. yeah. So that's, that's a huge thing. And, and the, the horses were, weren't worth whatever you think about working horses. I, I've been around some lately in barns. They need a good size barn. You know, yeah. e every horse does need to roam a little bit when they're off duty and the feed and all that. So Even the crap. That makes a lot you, of you're sense. You're talking about 50 to 100 horses. That's a lot. Of, and that's the awful story, too, that when there's a fire in Manhattan, especially uh, these breweries that are so huge, 
um, you know, the loss of life is usually like the animals are a big are a big number. And of course, there's there's human lives lost as well. But the, it's a it's a huge part of what they were. And the other thing, too, again, this is something you and I were talking about before we got here. Um, breweries before Prohibition. Um, you had your own licenses. In other words, you owned the saloon and then a saloon keeper came in and ran the saloon. But you, um, as a brewer, owned the license to that. And so a lot of these places needed massive storage areas because they were storing chairs and and uh, and stools and tables and all kinds of stuff as they bought and sold corner lots. And again, this is why... Uh, especially uh, in the 1800s and early uh, early 1900s, breweries are so tied into the real estate market because they're buying and selling corner lots left and right like crazy because all these guys go, well, see that corner? That's going to be a great bar. So we're going to buy that corner. We're going to turn it into a bar or we're going to turn it into a bar and a hotel. And, and it goes on like that. And that's not just New York City. That's Albany, where beer is incredibly politicized because almost every mayor, I think they were like, six mayors in a row that were all brewers at one point. So beer becomes a very important part of the political system in the state. So uh, let's same, go to that. Same thing with uh, campaign Buffalo. of p- pick a rough year, a campaign in a place like Albany. Well, how uh, much beer was given out? Oh, that's a good voters? question. It's given out. It's forced. It's, uh, it's really funny. I think the one that sticks out to me, and I apologize because I promised I wouldn't go to prohibition, but the most famous of, uh, to me, uh, I'm sure Craig would have a much better example. Uh, in uh, Buffalo, uh, six out of seven years, they elected a man, uh, a mayor, who said, to heck with prohibition, you could drink all you want. I don't care. I'm at the, uh, and so he won six out of uh, uh, seven elections, saying you could drink all the beer you want. We're not going to bust you for making beer or drinking beer. Um, that's, that's pretty much about the best I could do. But uh, in, in v- Buffalo, beer, right? in, in Albany, there were, there were the... Uh, connection between uh the mayor's uh office and and beer was a very solid connection i'm sorry craig's not here to enumerate on that but that's a really big well we have to we have to look forward to the book you know it's still two years out you'll have craig back on we're we're not we're gonna we're gonna talk about a few more things in the next year we'll probably talk about cans and 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 that but i want to go back so we get 1820 um so 19th century bushwick we're out here in bushwick brooklyn how many breweries are out here? In 1820, practically none. Bushwick was a farmland. It was it was really kind of empty as far as brewing was concerned. By the uh, bef- by the time you get to Prohibition, though, there's 50 breweries in in uh, in Brooklyn, and there's some big ones, and there's some big ones in the Bronx, and there's a large one in Staten Island. Uh, you have Queens, uh, the uh, the Ridgewood section in Queens. So you've got a ton of brewing going on uh, by the time Prohibition hits um, uh, in uh, 1920. Uh, Brooklyn fills up. Uh, uh, the, the the real point of Brooklyn is that Brooklyn starts to fill up when Manhattan becomes too expensive and too silly to brew in. And that's when you get places like, I mean, when you think about uh, 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 Schaefer was in business 134 years, Wrangled was in business 120 some odd years, and Peels was in business like 100 and 
14 years. So you're talking about businesses that moved. They, they didn't start in Brooklyn. They ended up in Brooklyn. And, and Brooklyn sees a lot of people come across. Uh, and then there's there's a lot of people who, who start out small. Uh, there are cemetery tours where you can go see the uh, the graves of all the brewers uh, uh, over in in Queens, especially. Um, there's a there's one brewer, there's one cemetery I think that has eleven brewers uh, uh, graves there or twelve something like that. It's a really large number. Um, and there's a, there's similar cemetery tours. Uh, in um, Albany and in, in, in Brooklyn, uh, in the Bronx rather, um, and in Buffalo. So it's it's amazing. They were they were always tight knit groups of brewers. So I think I think Matt's going to ask you more questions because he's he's got a great insight. He's our head engineer, but he's also been worked <laughs> awesome. in breweries before. Yeah, yeah, I used to work in breweries out in uh, Southern California, and when I moved here to New York, what was that, twenty fifteen, and I was like. Shot, you know, coming from San Diego, which had a certain number of breweries per capita, much, much higher. Uh, I was, I was shocked at like how few breweries there were, even in 2015, in the city. And then there was kind of an explosion. I mean, there, at least relative to to what there was. But I guess I was curious. You mentioned like 50 breweries pre-prohibition in Brooklyn, and and I associate that pre-prohibition time with this just like huge number of breweries in the United States. I think it was 5,000 or something. I don't remember. I, I remember when you would compare the numbers today, even at the height to then, it took a long time to get anywhere close. And so I'm just curious, like, how many breweries were there just in total across all boroughs at, at the peak of breweries in New York City? Oh, that's a tough one, only because I was really concentrating on the whole state. It's not just about New York City. It's okay, yeah. Brooklyn and Albany, et cetera. Here's the thing, though. Right now, you are living in the golden age of beer. We have more breweries in New York State than ever before. Um, they're not as big. Uh, and if you're wondering why there weren't all these breweries when you got there, it's a little longer answer, but I think it, it, the history-wise, you're going to love it. So uh, in the 1960s, up till 19, about 66, 67, Schaefer was still among the top two or three uh, breweries in America, and they were actually larger than Anheuser-Busch. And here's how we know why. Because Anheuser-Busch and Schaefer were had a, a, a semi-secret agreement to uh, market each other's beers in their territory. Uh, Anheuser-Busch put Schaefer on the West Coast and Schaefer got uh, uh, Budweiser on the East Coast. That was their deal. The DOJ said, no, 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 you're both top five brewers. That's monopoly. Uh, that's unfair trade advantage. And instead of suing Budweiser, they sued Schaefer because they considered Schaefer the larger brewer at the time, which is kind of fascinating. Fast forward a little uh, uh, afterwards, uh, the beer wars, the consolidation beer wars are now way in uh way in the advanced stages. I mean, uh, uh, places like Stroh's and Miller and Budweiser and Pabst have decimated the, the, the country, uh, eradicating small breweries all over the place. And it's the late 60s. This is the late 60s now. And they've really done a good job by now. And so what they do is um, New York is, a, is really an impenetrable fortress. You've got Peel's, You've got Rangold and you've got uh, uh, Schaefer, who are all in the top 10 in terms of brewing in the country. So this is a massive home advantage. And that Schaefer and Rangold and uh, Peels are 
distributed from Boston all the way down to Washington and Maryland, et cetera. So they've got dominance on their side. But the one thing they don't have on their side is economics. And what Miller and Budweiser do is they set up plants in New York State and Pennsylvania, and they realize that they can make a barrel of beer for $2 a barrel. And it takes Schaefer, Rangold, and Peels $5 to make the same barrel. Why? Because it takes you, a, anybody who's driven outside of New York knows it takes you like a half a day just to get around the city, to get out into the mainland. And that's money. That's money every time you have to pay a truck driver to go do that. They have higher, they have more expensive unions. Their, their fees to Con Ed are four and five times what they pay in, in, out in the sticks in New Jersey or Pennsylvania. Uh, the taxes are, are higher in the city than they are out in the sticks. And so it becomes a disadvantage. And it's an advantage as far as Budweiser is concerned. So what Budweiser and Miller do is they start creating a beer war. And they're like, we can, we can survive a beer war forever. So we're just going to start killing them by a death of a thousand cuts. So if Schaefer puts out a six pack for $3, we're going to put ours out for $2. And they do that and they do that and they do that. And it takes them about six or seven years to kill off the brewing industry in New York. Peels goes first. Rheingold goes second. It's not Rheingold's fault. Rheingold's is actually a very profitable company, as is Schaefer. Schaefer falls right after Rangel. The Rangel story is interesting because Rangel's super popular. Uh, I just want to say, this is all news to me. Oh, this is great yeah, stuff. Yeah, I've never heard this yeah. before. It's so like very cool. We thought cool it was just like TV this. commercials and Miller <laughs> no, Lite or something. So this is great. So Rangel is one of the most profitable breweries in New York State because uh, in the 50s and 60s, they decided to diversify and they were the largest bottler of soda in America. And their biggest customer was Pepsi. The biggest mistake Rangel did was the family wanted to go public so they could fuel further expansion. When they did that, PepsiCo waited about a year and a half. And then they did a hostile takeover of Rangel. They bought it. They took all the bottling plants. They said, oh, you're now Pepsi Corporation. And then they cut Rangel loose as a as a as a uh, uh, as a brewery, the problem was, you know, all the bottling equipment that they had, they were writing off to their to their soda bottling side. So it was it was a, a you know a, in terms of um, accounting, they were making money, right? Because you were splitting it between two businesses. Now you have to pay all these expenses just as a brewery. You can't cut it, and poor Wrangle goes through this awful slow death roll that goes on forever. They were bought by chock full of nuts for a dollar and they couldn't make it work buying it for a dollar. And you see uh, Peels goes in like 73, 74 and then uh, Wrangle almost goes out of business twice, finally dies January 76. And when Wrangle does that, Schaefer has a place in They've already built an escape pod in, in Pennsylvania, and they give up the ghost uh, uh, two months later in Brooklyn. And New York goes from three of the largest breweries to none in a three-year period. Okay, let, let's just go a little deeper on this one. Um, having studied this, and, and you're writing about it in the book, this brings me think about how important is a brewery, a large brewery with its headquarters, in a city, how important is that to the city? Oh, because the loss of, of those breweries must have 
you were talking, these were major stories that were, you know, if you read like the New York Times or you go back to the Wall Street Journal in those in those moments, uh, these were front page headline stories. Uh, so this is, for alone this is bigger, bigger than bigger than the, the Brooklyn Dodgers moving. Out. Oh, much bigger, much bigger. Uh, uh, Rangel and, and Schaefer are like twenty five hundred to three hundred to three thousand workers each. Now you're talking about good a union wage jobs. These are not just, you know, everyday ditch digger jobs. These are good middle uh, way, uh, middle class wage jobs. Uh, and you're talking about a lot of money that is suddenly not flowing through the city, right? These people, not only do they have these jobs, but, you know, they're going to the local bar, they're going to the local restaurant, they're going to the local grocery store. There's a lot of money that's now not circulating throughout the economy. And, and, and I'm not saying that brewing supported the city, but it's emblematic of what was going on in the city at the time. If you're a big manufacturer in the city, and there were thousands of them, you have to remember that New York City up until the 50s was a, was a manufacturing town. It wasn't this financial place that we consider today. Generation after generation after generation came over on a boat, got a job in a factory, got you know a crappy job digging ditches, whatever they did, and they did that for half their lives, and then finally moved out to the suburbs or to which were then Queens and Brooklyn, and then you moved out maybe further. That was the traditional life cycle of a generation or two generations. Now you have all these businesses that are leaving, like the garment center. Uh, there used to be a very healthy electronic center. The in, late in 90, lower, in the 60s, uh, yeah. 90s, 60s. That all gets wiped out. And now you have immigrants. And there's a great uh, piece from Pete Hamill that was just fantastic. Um, and you have all these immigrants coming in looking for the next job. Like, we're here. We're the next generation. Uh, they're, they're people. They're Latinos. They're African-Americans. They're Asians. And they're looking for the next jobs. There's no next jobs. Uh, unemployment goes from 100,000 people to a million people in less than 10 years. So, uh, again, I'm not saying that the, the, you know, the city hit the skids because Wrangell went out of business, but it was emblematic of what was going on at the well, time. Well, I, I like where this book's going because right now we've got first beer was sold when Henry Hudson came here to trade for food. Oh, uh, what else? So, no, no, so this is important <laughs> because this goes back to what he was asking about. So when the first new breweries came, right? So the first new craft brewers were New Amsterdam, um, I, I'm, oh, I'm going to go. Zip City. Zip City, all these guys. In and the guess, 90s, 1990s. Right, in the 90s. And guess what they found out? Nothing had changed. Uh, at one point, they were pay, the uh, uh, um, New Amsterdam, what, or was it, uh, what was the other one? There was another one, uh, New Amsterdam, and there was another one I can't remember. Anyway, the owner was like, we are paying $1,200 a month to park our delivery truck because we don't have parking for a delivery truck. And he was like, I can't compete with somebody who's just parking their truck for free in Jersey. It's impossible. And they realized very quickly that it was impossible to run a brewing business in the city. So what happened was... New Amsterdam says, screw this. We're going to go to FX Matt and we're going to start having our beer made at FX Matt. Upstate. Upstate, yeah. which is a great brewery. And they, they are a whole nother story in the book. That's a whole nother chapter, how they really saved craft brewing in New York State. Um, and so, uh, so this, it's been a, a lot of challenges. Oh, it's so it was impossible. The so they were saying, it's easier to brew the beer there and then we'll sell it in New York City. And eventually, uh, a Brooklyn brewery did it the best. 
we'll brew our first two beers out in at FX Matt, and then we'll slowly start to build a brewery here in the city. And wow. that was the best one. But the first three or four, uh, the first five or six breweries all failed miserably. Okay, well, we're getting brought up to speed on the, the book about New York State beer. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Hey, it's our 14th year, and we're so proud to be a longtime podcaster on heritageradionetwork.org. Support us and become a member, heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. So I'm here with Carlo DeVito. He's giving us a sneak peek of the massive a New York State beer book that is covers everything from Henry Hudson in 1609 to to what's going on now. And it's not even close to coming out. It's still years away. But we were talking about cans and collecting, and uh, now we've been talking about all kinds of things. Let's talk about ice in the 19th century. Yeah, how, how did you keep things cold? You needed ice for beer? Well, so the question is, why do you need ice for beer? That's a whole different question. Originally, when you're making English ales, it doesn't really matter. A lot of English ales are made to drink at room temperature. Now you have the influx of the Scottish and the uh, and the Germans, and now all of a sudden Pilsner becomes the hot new beer. And you have to understand too, it's like eighteen forties, eighteen forties, very good, eighteen forties, and then uh, especially after the Civil War, there's like just a massive boom of how Pilsner just completely takes over the country, and uh, it, it's a really fascinating thing. You see, New York laws are brutal because now you have this. Uh, and I'm not saying it in a pejorative sense, but you have this uh, uh, Anglo-Protestant uh, group, and they do not want the Irish and the German. They're, they uh, and for all the stories for each uh, immigrant wave that comes over, uh, they they literally would enact beer laws that would uh, negatively impact German brewers and German beer gardens. They did everything they could to try to close German beer gardens and things like that. So it was really, really fascinating. But of course, Pilsner needs, you need ice, you need cold. And so, you know, first you start digging vaults, et cetera, which is not all that uncommon for, for other beer styles, but it becomes a bigger and bigger thing. And ice now becomes a, a real issue. And the other part is that the, the world has discovered the ice box, more or less, right? The ice box has now become something that's in almost every home or in many homes. And so how do you keep things cold? So the largest uh, growing region for ice, as it were, was the Hudson Valley. Uh, the three largest ice growing cities were 
Coxsackie, Catskill, Athens, and Hudson. Those were the big four way up toward the top. And there was another one uh, uh, mid, mid uh, Hudson Valley. I can't remember the name. I apologize. And so uh, this became a billion dollar industry. It was a billion dollars back in the day, just to give you an idea of how big this industry really was. And they were two main uh, companies, uh, the National Ice uh, Company and the, the American Ice Company. And, and that's what happened in the, in the late Victorian era. People created corporations. Corporations would buy up little companies and become big companies. And um, ice was everything. You had shipped down hundreds of thousands of tons of ice down the um, the river into the city. Ice would, from there, uh, it was used by the breweries, it was used by uh, hotels, uh, et cetera, sold to individuals for your personal ice box and shipped out to Australia um, and other hot weather uh, regions around the world. So it was a massive industry. And it's only in the uh, late 1800s and early 1900s that machine-made ice starts to come around and that and breaks that down. But there was a wonderful, wonderful scandal involving. Uh, this is this is the fun of this book. There was a wonderful <laughs> scandal that took place because of uh, Tammany Hall. They went around and bought up a whole bunch of uh, uh, ice conglomerates uh, and uh, using stock trades, etc. And what they also did is that they were all Tammany Hall guys, so they controlled the licenses from where ice could be shipped. And suddenly ice tripled inside of less than a month. The cost of ice tripled. It was a huge scandal only to find out that even the governor was on the take on this one and they had pocketed millions of dollars through uh, Tammany Hall, uh, 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 New York uh, Town uh, City Hall, uh, and, and, and the governor had all taken this money uh, that they were stealing from so Carl, regular folks. Carl, what, what led you to this book? I mean, I... I, I didn't you... want to do this book originally. <laughs> uh, I got called by SUNY and they said, we want to do this big thing. And and I said, who would do that? It's insane. It's 400 years of... Really, it's a lifetime's worth of work. I, I don't want to do that. I, nobody, who's going to... I, 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 I don't see myself doing that. And, um, and they were like, well, yeah, but you're the guy. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't want to do that. And... Uh, and I, and they and we agreed not to do it. And then um, and then they called me back a couple of months later, and um, and they said, "Will you reconsider?" And I said, "Well, number one, I don't know this. Uh, there's a lot of there there because they wanted all of New York State." And I said, uh, "And I said, but I know guys who know. So if you'll allow me to bring them on into the project, then I'm then I'm in. And if they don't want to do it, then we're not doing it." And so I called up. I contacted Craig. He and I had known each other tangentially for what, quite a while. What's his name? Craig, Craig Gravina, uh, who's fantastic. He wrote the uh, Upper Hudson Valley Beer book uh, with Alan McClod. And uh, and he put me into contact with Alan. And Alan said, yeah, let's do it. Um, uh, they put me in touch with Ethan. And again, I had been tangentially uh in, uh, connected to Ethan Cox of the the Buffalo Beer Project, who'd also written a history of Buffalo beer. Um, and uh, they introduced me to Don Kazentre, again, somebody I tangentially knew, but uh, and Don writes uh, all the news articles about uh, uh, the, the Southern tier, Western New York, the, the um, 
Finger Lakes. Uh, he's just the man uh, when it comes to that portion of the state. So when those guys said, yeah, uh, uh, we're interested uh, and, and we can we could participate. We can don't I don't want to say donate. But we could contribute uh, is the right word. Um, Bro, then, what's then a, what's right. a part of New York that that you've learned something about? I mean, you're learning about all parts of New York. But uh, you an know, anecdote. Uh, 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 you know, number one, uh, uh, I, number one, you, you get you learn real fast that people are very um uh, uh, touchy about when you refer to central New York, because as a, as a long lived New York city, uh, resident, I, I view almost everything else as central New York or upstate. There's like, that's it pretty much in Buffalo. That's, I, I see it in those three big things, but of course that's not how the state sees it, right? You know, there's all these pockets and you have to be aware of that, but I didn't realize how much how much history there was in some of these towns. Like Buffalo had an immense brewing history and, and uh, uh, Ethan's been just tremendous and super helpful in, in doing that. And you had well, some of my favorite stories. You had uh, Gerhard Lang, who was one of the most, uh, again, in the, in the late Victorian you know, I, era. I've never heard of him before today. He is, he's one of the biggest brewers in the history of the state. Again, uh, his, when he built his place, it was state of the art people would come from other countries to see his his brewery. Um, uh, what was really fascinating that you don't really understand until much later is that uh, they used to have the World's Fair, right? Like that was a big thing back in the day. You had these expositions and these World Fairs. Well, that was a very competitive thing for beer producers to get into. And one of the biggest slaps in the face is that Pabst became the brewer for the uh, New York Buffalo Exposition. Here you have, I think, five of the top 10 brewers in the entire country are in New York State, and Pabst steals the license for the New York Exposition in Buffalo. And so- And we're, we're, Pabst was- uh, We're talking about 1901, 1903, because that's where uh, McKinley gets shot, is at that exposition. Um, but what, they were based in Milwaukee. They were based in Milwaukee, yes. And so that's a big slap in the face to New York Brewing. So what one of the local brewers did was brought, they bought the hotel that was directly across the street from the uh, entrance to the exposition and put up a huge brewing stand there. And they stole a lot of business uh, from the exposition there. They were very proud of themselves. And the idea was to get a pin and it was like a, it was a big F you to the <laughs> whoever was doing the exposition to wear the button and walk in with the button that said, I, I drank it. Uh, I forget that they, I think it was Lion Brewing, but it wasn't connected to the one in New York City. It was like, I drank at the Lion instead or something like that. It was very, very clever stuff that they got away with. But uh, in central New York, or, or uh, I'm going to say between Buffalo and, and the Hudson Valley, uh, you have. Um, FX Matt, which of course is a huge place. You've got Utica Club. Um, uh, these are massive uh, breweries that um, uh, are historical and and very important historically for a number of reasons. And they're still out there today, uh, and they're great. And then of course Craig again uh, has the whole history of Beverwick and and all the uh, and C H Evans and all the uh, uh, breweries that were there and we had uh, the history of the uh, Vassar who was incredibly uh, important uh, he he represents the growth so tell, tell of the Hudson we, River. We heard of Vassar College. That, you've heard of Vassar College. Well, long before there was Vassar College, there was Vassar Brewing. It was set up in Poughkeepsie, New York, and he amassed one of the first really great fortunes in 
uh, as a brewer. And um, he, you have to understand the value of that is that he made his fortune at a time when the Livingstons and Robert uh, um, uh, 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 Fulton had first set up the steam engine. And now you can get up and down the Hudson River in, in a few days. It used to take you a week and a half to, uh, to two weeks. So now that has made... Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, trade and so Congress. You can brew up in Poughkeepsie. You can brew up in Poughkeepsie. You can get it down in New York City. You can get it up to uh, Albany. And now all of a sudden you've got a regional brewer who's taking advantage of that opportunity. And and that is eventually superseded by the railroads. And and Vasher was there for that. And he's shipping his stuff up and down the railroads. So that's a that's a big thing, taking advantage of the these opportunities. And, and that's what half of this book is all about, seeing how the Erie Canal, the the opening of the steam engine and, and the Hudson River, these are these are massive connection ways. These are highways that, that we don't think of now, but they were huge engines in the growth of this state. One of the things that the beer book really taught us um, is if you look at the population of New York State, it's a big zigzag and 80 to 85 percent of all the people in New York State live on Long Island, New York City, up the Hudson River and across what used to be the the Erie Canal. It's a 25 mile span. It's just a big Z. It's all it is. And still that was created back in the 1800s. And it's still the truth today. Wow. And actually fewer people live in some of the podunk towns now than they did in the 1800s. Can, wow. I, can I get yeah. one New York City question back in? Sure. So you mentioned these breweries as as real estate moguls, like looking at these corner shops, opening up bars. When I think about like long time drinking establishments in New York City, you know, my mind goes to like McFadden's or Francis Tavern. I think Francis probably predates all that. Are there any operating bars that actually like have their 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 roots in those that sort of like brewery owned system that you can go drink at today or are they all gone most of them are all gone i think the ones that you are probably familiar with are still and they're in the book are are still there today like mick sorley's and some of the other ones you mentioned uh i i listed about um six or uh, I think we, I should say we, not I, uh, listed about six or seven of them in the book uh, because that's an important part. And you're right. Francis Tavern is definitely a part of our American Revolutionary War story. Uh, and that, that was fun because back in those days, if you were a gentleman of means, you didn't have a wine cellar. You had a porter cellar because porter, English porter was a really big thing. And that was a real sign of wealth to have a porter cellar in your in your house. So you'd see a death notice and somebody would say they left like furniture and chairs and property and a porter seller. <laughs> it was kind of fun. But uh, most of the ones that you could think of today are are the ones that... That's that, pretty... Uh, I never thought of that. Did you, Matt? So that, that was fun. The beer cellar. The beer cellars. Yeah, that was fun. Wow. Um, and you were asking earlier uh, with the, uh, uh, one of the other traditional things that uh, has come and gone is, is the growing of grain, uh, barley in New York State. New York State was the largest uh, 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 grower of barley for many, many years. And it, first, it was the Hudson Valley because that was the breadbasket of the of the uh, early uh, colonial period, and, and then it starts to generate 
toward Albany and the places west of Albany. Then it goes to central New York and then it goes to western New York. And why that happens originally, beer is made next to where the barley is grown. But because the supply train can now be extended, I don't have to buy, I don't have to, I can't buy barley from the Hudson Valley because it's now being grown in Western New York. So that's got to come down the Hudson River, right? So that's why, again, Livingston and, 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 and uh, uh, what's his name, are so important opening up the Hudson River. And now it's going to go further west. That's why the canal is so much more important now. Because if you're, again, I hate to use these big ones because they're the big ones, but if you're Lyon or if you're Rupert or you're, if you're Hellgate or if you're, you know, Schaefer or uh, they were uh, uh, or Rheingold or Peels, you're shipping boxcars, you're shipping you know, big, big cars of, of, of grain. And so that has to happen somehow. And, and eventually it all goes to trains, but trains allow that supply train to be extended and extended and extended to the point where when we had the Farm Beer, uh, uh, the Farm Beer Act, the Farm Brewery Act, I'm sorry, uh, enacted as, as, as people who were involved in it explained to me, they were trying to recreate a a supply chain that had had been dead for a hundred years. We, you know, you didn't buy brewers hadn't bought local grain in a hundred years. So now you have to learn how to regrow this grain all over again. You have to learn how to. Uh, it's, it's a different kind of farming, and you have to understand that kind of farming. And we didn't have grain that was suitable to the region. You had grain that was suitable to the region. You'd let it, you let it pass because the, the growing had gone somewhere else where the weather conditions were drier and more amenable. So now you're coming back into New York State and you're dealing with disease pressures that they don't deal with out in the West. And so that, that became a real issue. But that's, again, how the growing, I mean, because we were the growing capital of grain uh, in America up until the 1860s. And again, that starts to fall apart and you start to see that go out to the West and California also becomes a big uh, partner in that. And, uh, And hops is the same way. Hops is grown around the capital region. It's a huge, huge crop. It migrates out to central New York and the Finger Lakes where remnants of it still live today, uh, then it moves a little further. Cap- capital west. region means Albany, New Albany, York. Albany, yeah, I'm sorry, capital in New York. Yes. Okay. And then, uh, it, and then it goes a little further out west, and then all of a sudden it shifts to Oregon. Carla, Washington, you, are you li- living this book in your head? Oh, it's frightening. I've got, I've got two other books I'm supposed to be working on. This book every runs time everything. that Carlo finishes a chapter, <laughs> it's on Facebook, and all it is is this damn computer. <laughs> And, but I mean that's that's the, and you've got your writers they're they're all, all so into it with well, you they well, all my, comment about my it favorite part is I, I I've learned now that I, I I sometimes I lie I say I've written the chapter first because then they all jump on the thing and they go no you got this wrong or make sure you do that or I could send an email they completely ignored I, it but if I post it on Facebook they all have an I, opinion I, I'm gonna call this so th- <laughs> whenever this book comes out in about two years you're gonna see Carlo and some of his other writers. This is going to be the talk of, of of TV and media, at least for a short short time. I think it's, it's, this, it's so. You got to get some more practice. This is your warm up session. <laughs> we got you on Beer Sessions Radio. Matt Patterson's here in the studio with us, and uh, thanks, man. Thanks for coming out. 
No, it's it's uh, thank you very much. This is a, a dream come true to be here and and do beer sessions radio. This is pretty wild, and uh, and I can't thank. Uh, yeah, I mean. Craig and Alan and Ethan and, and Don, they're just doing a tremendous job. And uh, it's been so much work. I mean, uh, the digging that they've done. And and I, I obviously, I've had a, a, to do, do my own uh, level of lifting. And uh, it's it's a fascinating story. It really is. Great. You good with that, Matt? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for being here. This is great. Guys, All thank right. you so much I for learned, having me. I learned me. things. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks to Carlo. Thanks to Matt. Uh, Matt Patterson, not only our engineer, but our kind of head of studios. And uh, it's great to be back in the studio with you, with you, Matt. Um, Jimmy Carboni, I'm the host here on Beer Sessions Radio. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on Heritage Radio Network. All right. Woo. Thank you. Yeah. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.